Welcome to episode 142 of No Challenges Remaining, back in America, back on the Skype. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by my dear friend, Corey Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. How was your trip back? How are you? Are you feeling recovered from Melbourne and our 14 episodes and 14 <sighs> podcasts and everything else that happened in the first Grand Slam of the year? I confess, I maybe got home on... I guess Tuesday of last week and was pretty much out of commission through Saturday. Uh, and then finally kind of got everything in order and felt normal on Super Bowl Sunday. It was also Chinese New Year yesterday, which was Monday. Happy so, New Year. Thank you very much. Happy New Year to all the those who celebrate uh, uh, the Lunar New Year. I don't like calling it Chinese New Year because it's not just Chinese. I'm not Chinese. But anyways. Lots of Asians because you were saying because like you're Vietnamese. And Tet is the same date, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's our. It's it's just the Lunar New Year. So you know, um, yeah, Year of the Monkey. So yeah, so the last two days have been somewhat busy, but um, yeah, today I felt I felt the last two days I felt pretty normal. Waking up early as I'm supposed to do for my job. Not that my bosses will think that I woke up early, but it was early for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like it's early for West Coast, but probably late for East Coast. <laughs> I confess. Um, but yeah, so it was all good. How about you? No, everything's been fine. Everything's been good. Um, yeah, I probably I got back later because I had a layover in Dubai, which was fun. I saw our dear friend Reem Abulail there, and uh, I had like 21 hours there. So I got back Thursday morning here. And yeah, I actually, because of the Dubai layover, I didn't get to like quite sync up my body clock as fast as usual. Uh, so I probably got back to normal yesterday, Monday, which is not too bad. That's not bad. I feel like grand scheme of things, like it used to be so hard to go around the world, and now like three days of jet lag seems pretty, pretty small price to pay for that. Um, speaking of people traveling and stuff, Courtney, Andy Murray got home in plenty of time. How excited are you? So excited. So excited. Congratulations to Andy Murray and Kim Sears and Grandma Judy Murray and Uncle Jamie Murray and the entire Murray Sears uh, clan. Uh, yeah, Andy Murray and Kim Sears. They have a baby girl, of course, obviously, because the universe makes sense that Andy Murray's firstborn child would be a lady. It's one of those things that's like the universe got this one right. Yeah, it makes it, as I was telling Ben before, it's just one of those things where I'm like, you know what? There's order to this crazy world. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those those true facts. So congratulations to them. Nobody knows the name yet. I'm sure there are, are pools. Um... There's there's odds being offered okay. uh, by British bookmakers on the names. I don't know if you saw this, but the the leading candidate for the name, which like not that high a favorite, it's like six to one, is Freya. F-R-E-Y-A, which I guess is like a Scottishy name. Oh, okay. I don't know. But the leading candidate for middle name is Judy or Judith. Yeah. Judy or I Judith. Think. Or I was thinking um, his grandmother's name, Shirley. Mm-hmm. But she also has a first name that's not Dolores, but it's something like that. But yeah, like, you know, there there's always a lot of that of kind of, you know, playing tribute. And, you know, Andy Murray loves paying tribute to the ladies in his life. And what if he, what if he named it like... You know, Amelie Judy Murray. Oh, amazing. <laughs> amazing. Oh. So we don't think that'll oh. happen, probably. But, <laughs> but it would be fun. But it's pretty great. And, yeah. uh, and I mean, how happy are you? Because I know for a fact 
that Ben was really stressed out on behalf of Andy Murray during the entire Australian Open. Legit. I he said was it having, on the show. Yeah, he was freaking out. So how relieved are you that Andy got home in time? And, uh, you know, yeah, just, I guess, a week a week later. No, I'm, I'm, I was, once he got home and, like, once, I realized a couple days ago, like, wait, we haven't heard about the baby being born yet. This must be good news. Yeah, so everything was, everything was fine. I still feel like my... You know, obviously very vicarious, very vicarious, uh, like not even, you know, very detached fretting was, you know, not unjustified. This was still big picture cutting things close uh, when it comes to something like birth of first child to be opposite side of the world and only be home, I guess, with what, like seven days to spare. Right. Um, So it's, you know, not, was not completely a foregone conclusion this would work out. I'm very glad it did and happy that Andy... Uh, yeah, everything worked out for them, and everyone seems to be good. And I disagree. <laughs> Someone say like, "Well, you know, everyone plays better after they have kids now, so now Andy's going to do much better." Like, I don't. That's stop with that. Like, well, I don't buy into that at all. And but. also, can we stop that entire narrative of like, "Oh, they're fathers and they play great tennis." Who cares? Honestly, like, I mean, being <laughs> like they've over it. It just reeks of kind of at least some of the takes that I've seen reeks of like despite having kids they're still playing great tennis which is weird like that's a weird that's a weird way to frame that let's not let's this, not do that or it's like it's almost as if imagine if they were like women and i don't know where i'm going with this exactly but like it's like look it's important to have it all right. like you can't be a good tennis player without having a fulfilled family life and yeah i just don't buy into that either well now i um, now all i'm doing yeah. is imagining andy murray stuffing a meatball sandwich into his mouth as he's trying to board a plane yeah, anyways. I can oh, have it Rock. all. 30 Rock. Good times. I wonder if Andy Murray's ever watched 30 Rock. Oh, I, I bet you he'd love no. it. I'm I guessing he no. hasn't, though. Yeah, I'm yeah. Prob- probably not. Probably not. It doesn't seem like he would find his way there. So we should probably just sneak a, a DVD set into his bag next time we see him. It's a good plan. Speaking of things that were sneaky, uh, segue here <laughs> to the report from The Guardian today uh, that came out by their reporter... Sean Ingle, who a little bit of taking a fork off of the standard match fixing things, he revealed some reporting about the uh, about chair empires in the futures level being banned from the sport for essentially being their own court siders. So essentially, delaying data from the Live Score app in order to give advantages to gamblers to be able to bet on time. Corny, do you want to react to this before I kick to him? Uh, no, I mean, I'm, I obviously wasn't um, on the call uh, with Sean, so I'm curious to hear what he has to say. I haven't heard the audio yet. Um, but, uh, but I mean, I guess my only kind of, ta- not takeaway, but the only thing that I'll say is that, you know, I am 100% in favor of transparency. I think transparency is great. I think that is something yep. that uh, sports and not just tennis, all sports everywhere, uh, all governing bodies, all eight you know, everyone um, should be striving to to increase transparency. I think that it nips a lot of problems in the bud. Um, so that's, I don't know. I mean, at least in the time that, that I've been with the WTA, it's been something that I've, I've definitely kind of championed a lot um, internally. Uh, you know, like we do those injury reports now, which are, are a bit of a change um, for, mm-hmm. uh, just in tennis. A lot of times that information was not, it's really not readily available for, for anybody outside of the the, I guess the WTA now because we do them every week, but yeah, transparency very good should be a goal. And if it's the goal, then you buy a lot of goodwill and you you fix a lot of problems. In just no, by, for sure by by shooting for it. 
No, for sure. And I think that's why this story, I think, is important, is that it's not really about what these, you know, Kazakhstani and Croatian bottom tier chair empires were doing, or even what their powers could be. I mean, these two guys could not on their own, you know, capsize the sport. And I'm not saying this event did anything that dramatic quite, but what it shows is the response of the governing bodies and the lack of transparency that was revealed here. So I think those are the bigger issues here. And I, we talk about, I talk about that in a conversation just before we started this part of the show with Sean Engel of The Guardian, which you can enjoy right now. Very pleased to be joined by Sean Engel, senior sports writer for The Guardian and columnist. Sean, thanks for being with us. Thank you for inviting me, Ben. Yeah, so can you just give like a nutshell uh, version of what what your reporting in this story means, you think, uh, you know, what what is what was happening in this case and I guess bigger impacts it might have on this growing uh, scrutiny of tennis integrity that's happening in sport right now? Sure. Well, I mean, the nutshell is that uh, two international tennis umpires have been secretly banned while four others are face being thrown out of the sport for life on charges of serious corruption. Now, it should be said that this is at the uh, ITF's Futures Tour, so it's the lower um, rung of the tennis circuit. However, right. um, at the same time, I think it's interesting, two things are interesting. One, um, a guy from Kazakhstan called Kirill Pavanov, who's an umpire, was decertified back in February 2015 uh, for uh, contacting another official on Facebook in an attempt to manipulate the scored matches. And yet the ITF didn't publish this You know, a year on. If it hadn't been for the Guardian's investigation, they wouldn't have come forward with this. Um, secondly, another guy from Croatia, Dennis Pitner, who was banned for 12 months for logging on to a betting account uh, from which bets have been placed on tennis matches, he too, um, you know, banned six months ago, wouldn't have come out without the Guardian. So that's one element. Um, I think the second element is the fact that there, there are four others who um, are being accused of quite serious corruption. Now, what it's alleged they did, you know, under the terms of the, the ITF's deal with Sports Raider, all umpires are supposed to be uh, inputting scores as matches are going on almost straight away. And those right. scores are now, they go around the world, bookmakers pick them up and so on. But what in, in certain say, cases, towards end of games, towards end of sets, the umpires alleged to have deliberately delayed updating the scores by up to 60 seconds. And that, and then during the meantime, you had either someone on the court would, would alert the gamblers or even sometimes the umpires themselves would text the gamblers what was going on before updating their scores. So what the gamblers could then do, they could bet at bookmakers knowing already a point ahead or possibly even two points ahead and as we know, that creates a massive advantage. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and so this seems to be a little bit different flavor than most of the match-fixing stuff that we hear. This is more more along the lines of court-siding, which is for people who don't know, uh, when somebody has been, uh, usually someone associated with a tennis data firm or a gambler or something, has been present at a match and trying to beat uh, the live score by getting there ahead of it, you know, just getting the data before. But essentially, this is the chair empire, who's, you know, obviously supposed to be a professional official upholding the rules of the sport, I guess, almost being a courtsider himself, which is, which is pretty, uh, shows not, that's not a spot that should be vulnerable to that, you wouldn't think. Well, exactly. I mean, I think, I mean, we've become used to stories of players fixing matches, even though, you know, when you speak to integrity experts, they say it's a lot cleaner now than it was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But at the same time, I think most of us expect umpires should always uphold the integrity of the sport. Um, and clearly they haven't. I mean, one insider, you know, sort of said, you know, was shocked, said, you know, I mean, this affects the heart and the soul of the game. And it does, because even at the lowest level, if, if you can't trust it, then 
you know, and 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 the ITF with all its 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 millions and the money it gets, in, you know, into the sport can't police um, this properly. Then um, then it, then it's worrying. In in defending the work of the TIU over the last month or so, as it's come into scrutiny, one of the things that the ITF and ATP and TIU itself have sort of trotted out as an example that they're doing stuff is the number of people they have been able to ban for life or suspend so far. And it's not a big number. It's, you know, single digit life bans for sure. And not many more than that in terms of any suspensions. So I'm just wondering why would they want to keep something like this secret? Do you have any sense of why they wouldn't want to publicize this to bolster their numbers and make it look like they were more on top of the situation? Well, I think it's a little bit murky. Um, I mean, the ITF say the decision to sanction both officials under the ITF code of conduct was taken following TIU investigations. Um, they do also they did also uh, confirm that actually the ITF code of conduct for officials was amended in December 2015 to include public reporting of officiating sanctions from 2016 onwards. So they under their rules they didn't ha- the ITF didn't have to publicise this. Um, they've changed them now, but clearly it would have been embarrassing to them if it had to come out. So we can only speculate as to why. But you know, they waited a year in the case of uh, Kirill Pavanov. It's you know, it suggests they 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 sat on it and they 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 could have released it, but decided not to. Because that because that just raises all sorts of questions and suspicions and paranoia that I think has existed in tennis before. On I guess less on honestly less on the you know match fixing integrity quote unquote side of it, and more on the uh, steroid, you know, performance-enhancing drug side of it about silent bans, which have been sort of a, a buzz phrase in tennis, and this seems to fit that description because that's what you're, you're, as you said, they would not have come out with this at all had you know the Guardian not asked very specific questions about these people. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I agree with you. I think this is this is the worry. I, I think we're in an environment now, and it's not just tennis; it's in international sport in, in general, where people are less trusting of authority, people are more suspicious. Look what happened at the IAAF. Look, look what's happened at uh, FIFA, the governing body of football. Um, I think every government, uh, sporting, so every sporting government authority has to appreciate that it's not. You know, you have to be as transparent as possible. Otherwise, people are going to be suspicious, and uh, it, it does look a bit odd that they they, they took a year to uh, you know to announce this, and under you know after the Guardian went to them. Overall, I guess coming into this story, what were your thoughts on? I guess because you had obviously followed the match-fixing attention that it had gotten, I guess starting with the BBC BuzzFeed report in Australia and various other things that came out during that tournament. Do you think that the TIU and ITF are failing at this sort of thing? Or is it are they doing the best they can? Or how, how would you say, if you were to take the temperature of the state of affairs right now on this front for them, after after finding what you found here? Sure, it really depends on who you speak to. I mean, I, I mean I, I've spoken to uh, integrity experts that say the the TRU actually isn't perfect, but no one disputes that they've made the top levels of the game cleaner now than they were, say, two thousand seven when we you know when the Davidenko case you know sprung up, um, and before that, and sports integrity people have said to me, well, you know, tell me look at things, you know, how many other um, authorities, how many other sporting bodies have a similar TRU? So. On that respect, actually, tennis gets you know a little tick in the box. On the other hand, um, could it be better staffed? Yes. Could it um, be? Could it be more beefed up? Yes. 
could it be doing more to um, have a sort of a broader remit to take, you know, to tackle uh, more, you know, more corruption? Yes. And I think also, uh, but I would say, I mean, I think, you know, listening to particularly Chris Commode, the, um, the ATP chairman in, in uh, Melbourne, he, I think he's someone that gets it. You know, he was a guy that really pushed through uh, when, the, you know, the various, you know, board of the TRU met at the Aussie Open. You know, he sort of said, look, we've got to take action. And the next day, you know, independent review uh, into uh, the Tennis Protection Union was announced. Right. So, so I kind of think we're, it's not perfect. And I think this is, is worrying. You know, but, you know, I think there are good people in the game. And I, and I think at least tennis is probably better than where it was. At the same time, you look at the challenger level, you look at um, features level, you speak to professional gamblers, you speak to professional bookmakers, they tell you all sorts of stuff that, you know, legal reasons is quite hard to publish about their suspicions. You know, there is clearly a problem at these levels when it comes to match fixing, when it comes to, you know, as the Guardian has shown with, with perhaps a few umpires. And I'm not convinced that tennis is doing all it can to properly ensure that that corruption, you know, won't take place again in the future. Do you think you mentioned the gamblers and everything? Do you think, especially for this sort of betting at the very, very bottom level of the futures, where it's really pretty unregulated and, you know, most people at the top of the sport have no idea what's going on below. Do you think that the bookmakers or something have any sort of responsibility or culpability in even offering bets on who's going to win a set that's, you know, two points from ending and sort of having these markets open? Is this this level of tennis just too unreliable for there to be even opportunities for this sort of corruption? At this very, very low level. Because what people, when I had the mixed doubles story come out during the Australian Open, a very common reaction was, whoever bets on mixed doubles. And I think that would be, you know, triply the case when you're talking about a match of the futures like this. I thought the same. I've spoken to a few gam- um, sorry, bookmakers about this. And they say you'd be surprised if there's a quiet period in, in the, the betting day, you will get people putting £25, you know, on a result of a set or whatever, just sort of as a matter of course. So they build, you know, it's they're, they're not massive volumes, but at the same time, it, there is, it's a surprising amount that is bet on all sorts of random things. It's why the bookmakers offer prices, um, because they know that there is some sort of market for it. Um, exactly. They, they wouldn't be doing it if there wasn't money to be made. It, exactly. Sure. And uh, I guess the question is, is it wise for the IT... F and uh, to have this deal with Sports Radar to have these live scores, which then facilitates this betting, because obviously Sports Radar has deals with betting companies and sends the data everywhere. Or should perhaps, as a you know, as a result of of of, of taking seventy million dollars over five years, the ITF should actually say, right, well, we're going to spend X amount on ensuring that there are security officers at all these venues, ensuring there are live feeds at all these venues. So I think if you've got those two things, it makes it much harder for someone that wants to corrupt the game to go into the player's room to have a word with the umpire. And also, if you've got live pictures, it makes it much easier to see um, you know, if, if a player is potentially not doing their best, if an umpire is delaying, you know, updating the score. So, And it's a pretty good deterrent too, yeah. Exactly. But then we also perhaps go into the fact that is there a way, and maybe there's not, of... of of increasing prize money at futures level, so so players aren't tempted to, you know, agree, silently agree to share the first two sets, so that you know people betting can, you know, 
know who they, who's going to win the first set and bet on it, and 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 then just play the last set properly. Is there a way of you know? Of, I, I don't know. I mean, it's clearly it's not perfect. And when you speak to to people on the on that circuit, you know, they they, they hear all sorts of rumors all the time. No, I'm sure, and especially at the futures where you know you get less than a hundred dollars for losing first round. I mean, there's just the math for them is so so very skewed uh, in terms of what these sort of people are offering. Um, I guess at, overall, from what you've seen in this, to sort of wrap up, are there any general lessons or things that maybe the inter- independent review should look at or anything else uh, from what you've brought to the table here in this discussion that you think should be in a special, a special focal point for tennis? Is it just about the chorus of, you know, needing transparency? Or is there something more than that at hand in this one? No, I, th- I think that's the big take home. Uh, often it's the, um, it's the lack of transparency uh, that, that sort of, that, it, that, gets that you know it's the bigger story than the actual story yeah. i mean i mean it would not have been great if the itf had have come out last year and said you know, this umpire has been banned for life and this umpire has been banned for 12 months but if they had done it promptly if they had have given their reasons and explained why it, it would have been a one-day story but the fact they didn't for you know a year um and the, the fact that they, they, there are these other four that have been going my understanding is for quite a while it then, you know, it, as it say, it fuels suspicions that they aren't necessarily doing everything they can be do to to be transparent and to really tackle this corruption at the lowest level of the game. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Sean, for this. This was great having you here, and uh, look forward to reading anything more you might have on this in the future. Thanks, Ben. So the one sort of fun thing that happened, I guess, Fed Cup seems fun, right? I feel like something about at least our spirit towards it. We're Fed, we're Fed, Fed Cup, Cup cats. We love it. We Pretty love much. it. I mean, and I, same with Davis Cup. We love it. Like there are moments where it's incredibly frustrating, and sure. I don't think that we're the only ones that ever express our uh, desire for there to be, you know, changes or little tweaks here and there. Or in some I cases. think everybody says that. Yeah, yeah, that that's that's pretty standard. So, but but I love Fed Cup. I love that. Remember, I mean, hey Ben, remember last year when like the Fed Cup final was like out of control and everybody loved it and it was great and. Like even people who were shading Fed Cup all the time and women's tennis had to admit it was dope. It was indeed dope. You put it perfectly there. So this week we had just a few months later, it always strikes me as odd in Fed Cup. One of the odd things about it is how far apart for me the semifinal and final are. So actually there's less difference distance between the final of last year's tournament and the first round of this one than there is between the semi and final. So we're already back in Fed Cup. Fed Cup already started the World Group for 2016 and all the other tiers got going as well this past weekend. And there were some big surprises. Um, most notably, Russia, last year's runner-up, going down to the Netherlands, who a country with, who I was surprised, I remember being surprised last year when they made it to World Group. Like, why is Netherlands in World Group? And now, even now, they have no top 100 players and they managed to beat a Russian team that was not, you know, complete maximum because uh, Sharapova didn't play, but they got three points against Makarova and Kuznetsova and Kuznetsova again. So that's pretty legit work by Kiki Burton's and Rochelle Hogenkamp there. Uh, any any thoughts on that, that result? Let's start with that one. Yeah, I mean, definitely surprising because, as you said, it's not like, okay, yeah, Russia didn't have their A team because Maria didn't play, but they had their kind of A minus team. Those, you know, they had the, yeah. the next two highest ranked players um, and players that you expect to win. I mean, the Netherlands effectively swept Russia, uh, getting that three and zero lead. So that's pretty spectacular. 
Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's definitely the most surprising and, and really disappointing result for Russia just because, you know, now they're going to have to play Belarus to stay in the world group, um, in the playoffs in April, um, which, you know, that's not necessarily a gimme because it it looks like Azarenka is going to have to play that tie and, and, uh, you know, so, but, uh, you know, it would, they got a really great draw to get into the semifinals and hopefully, hopefully further for them. And they kind of blew it. Whereas the other like two or three teams got pretty rough draws and, uh, or six teams got pretty rough draws and yeah, there was drama in those as well. No, for sure. Let's go to the, I think what was probably the blockbuster tie of the weekend, which was Germany, Switzerland in Leipzig in Eastern Germany, which is kind of cool. Uh, and the Germans were there. Great attendance, big crowds for this. Cause I, I'm betting a lot of Swiss people came through too, because there's mm. no WTA events in Switzerland. And, uh, this was a great lineup for them. I mean, like we've talked about the Swiss team. And this was the first time we really saw them at full strength, having Belinda Bencic, Tamea Baczynski, and Martina Hingis, and uh, Hingis wound up coming down to the doubles with Bichin- with uh, Benchich winning both of her singles, Bachinski losing both of hers, uh, Benchich winning, including over, I should say, Angelique Kerber, recent Australian Open champion, and then came down to the doubles, and Benchich and Hingis pretty quickly dismissed uh, Pekovic and Gronefeld to give the Swiss uh, spot in the semifinals, which is uh, pretty, it feels like it feels like quick progress for what is sort of a, a a, blo- a re-blossoming country women's tennis right now. Yeah, and, and you know, you look at that team and, and you were saying this was a full, you know, a full squad for Switzerland, which it was, but we also have to take into consideration that Baczynski is not exactly in her, her you no. know, good or peak form at the no, moment. No, she lost pretty easily to Beck, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, Annika Beck came, came through in a must-win tie to beat Baczynski to force it to the decisive fifth. So that's like, it's notable for Annika Beck, who obviously had that really good run in Melbourne as well. So definitely kind of tracking her, her progress. Um, and she could make that uh, Germany Olympic race very, very interesting. But um, Yeah, she, she got the call in that, in that reverse singles tie over Pekovic, which is a little interesting. Yeah, but I think that at that point you, were, uh, you save Pekovic for the doubles with Gronefeld. Because okay. otherwise you're going to ask Pekovic to do the triple, play two singles matches and, and doubles in one day or in two days. Which mm-hmm. is which is a little rough, but obviously resting didn't didn't help against Ben Chichingas. Um But yeah, I mean, there's no reason to think that like this Swiss team is not going to win the Fed Cup title within the next two years, whether it's this year or next year. I mean, the checks are the checks, but this I don't know. This might be the year, you know. Assume, assuming that Baczynski hangs on to being a, a you know top player, and we'll see because she obviously had injury concerns and a pretty rough start to 2016. Right. Um, but yeah, but if they have Benchich. Uh, continuing to uh, improve and Baczynski stinks anywhere near her current level and Hingis hanging around for a while being a doubles juggernaut. Yeah, they are. I think they probably are my favorites to win this year. Yeah, I would think so. Given, given kind of Petra's uh, Kvitova's form um, kind of weakening the checks a little bit, but even without Baczynski, they can do it. I mean, Benchich can pull the, th- can do three. She can yeah. win t- as she showed, she won two singles matches and then the doubles with Hingis. I think Hingis is, you know, like we see most times with the men in Davis Cup, the doubles is the swing. So in this situation where you do have a, a, a singles player in in Benchich who can deliver on her two singles points, then you, regardless of what happens in the other two singles rubbers, you flip it over to two doubles and a team of Benchich Hinkis. I mean, that is solid stuff. Really, really is. Uh, the other tie is just to wrap up world group 
France beat Italy 4-1. Uh, and the last one was uh, Romania losing as host to the Czech Republic defending champion. And this was an interesting tie for sure. Um, and I think, Courtney, you were saying it sort of fit along with benches doing well, the theme of the young guns in women's tennis sort of carrying the week uh, with Carolina Pliskova getting three wins to help the Czechs through as Petra Kvitova got two losses. Petra Kvitova, usually a great Fed Cup player, coming up pretty short this weekend. Um, and I guess uh, Heidi Berger has a question for us about Petra. Let's just focus on Petra first, asking who would be a good coach for Petra and any inside information on her short-term, long-term plans slash long-term plans uh so does this weekend even though the checks get through does it leave you with more concern for for petra in any way she lost to nicolescu lost in three to halep not encouraging after an early australia loss yeah i think that with kavitova you know I, i was saying and this applies to a lot of the results this weekend which is i think i tweeted this over the weekend that this is the most perplexing non perplexing like slate of results that I've seen in Fed exactly. Cup in a long time. On paper, it's confirmation results. Yeah, exactly. They 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 on paper they look like a lot of like what like who beat who and you know it, this doesn't really make sense and all these sorts of things. But then if you actually have been tracking each one of these individual players' starts to the 2016 and even track through the end of 2015, pretty much confirmed across the board the status of each player with respect to their game and their confidence at the moment. Bencic obviously playing very well, but Chinsky still undercooked and, and fighting her way back from, from injury. Petkovic hasn't really been able to find things. It's, it's been tough. Um, you know, over the Makarova hasn't been great. Makarova hasn't been great. Sveta on and off as we always, as we always know, obviously she won <laughs> Sydney, but then I don't know. She loses twice to, the the Dutch, I, I don't know. It's yeah. Sveta. Sveta going Sveta. Um, Halep, obviously struggling. Kavitova struggling. Pliskova playing well. Um, mm-hmm. So Outside I, of slams. Yeah, yeah. and Pliskova, uh, Stritseva teamed up to get that decisive uh, win. Uh, Stritseva playing well. Played that great match against uh, Azarenka in, in Melbourne. Seems to be playing some pretty good tennis to start the season. So yeah. it's, it's pretty consistent with what you would think. Also with France... Um, Caroline Garcia, another youngster who, like, she's become kind of like a very reliable Fed Cup uh, player. Um, Did you see that great photo by Corinne DeBroy of uh, Garcia and Moresmo, like, screaming at each other, like, in celebration? No, I have to look that oh, up. Oh, it is, it is awesome. I retweeted it, I think, okay. so if people look back at my tweets from Sunday, it is there, and it is a great photo. And she plays so well under, under Moresmo, and... One theory that I heard that was floated to me by uh, by a coach when I was in Melbourne about about uh, Garcia, and I heard this from a few other players as well, is that obviously France has the rule that um, private coaches cannot be part of the Fed Cup squad, which is always mm-hmm. Bartoli back in the day and her Fed Cup participation yep. because she wanted Walter, her coach and father, to be there at the ties. The FFT was like, no, ended up being you know pretty bitter uh, throughout most of her career. That rule still is in place. Yeah. Caroline Garcia is coached by her father. When she plays Fed Cup, she's like a different player. Um, and there is uh, one coach told me who's pretty um, uh, heavily involved in, in women's tennis and also the French uh, the French players that that not having her father around just kind of like loosens her up a little bit. And she kind of plays with a joy that that uh, mm. at Fed Cup that she doesn't play necessarily with um, on tour. Which I thought to be a very interesting observation. I don't know. 
you know. Oh, for sure. I had, yeah, I had, that hadn't processed is. for me I mean, before. Ever since, remember that tie against the U.S. where she went absolutely in St. Louis. She was so good. Yeah, yeah, she was so good. And then against Italy last year on clay, um, and then this year again against Italy, she's she's great in Fed Cup. I mean, talk about a player who just outperforms her tour level when she puts on the colors. It's pretty great, and it doesn't suck when you you know you look to the sideline and Amelie Moresmo is there yelling at you to be awesome. Works for Andy like, Murray. I would probably, yeah, I'd probably be much better at my job if I had that. <laughs> I would, we all would, I'm sure. Uh, so let's take a <laughs> step back and talk about what even is Fed Cup. Uh, we got a question from Jessica Barubi, a listener of ours, who asks, my question is concerning Fed Cup, I guess, because I guess that is a thing right now. <laughs> I never understood what the country versus country format is. And aren't there other similar team tournaments like Davis Cup? I'm just really confused on how that whole thing goes down. Can you explain Fed Cup? Yes. So let's go Fed Cup like We're going to do a Fed Cup deep dive. Exactly. We're going to do a Fed Cup 101. Because, yes, sometimes we forget kind of that it's a really complicated And it's a unicorn. Event. Fed Cup is only three weekends a year. And yeah, it's like one always the... in like kind of down points in the calendar when you're not really otherwise. If you're a WTA fan of the WTA tour and all WTA events, it's at times of year when you're sort of like resting and like not – clicked into tennis as much when fed cup pops up right and if you're not if you're not a lifelong tennis fan uh it's it's a tough thing to to kind of process i remember i got a, at one point um when i was with sports illustrated i got a new editor and literally the first email that i drafted was this like two page so this is what fed cup and davis cup are because yeah. like my editor wasn't really familiar with tennis, and it was the one thing that was coming up on the calendar where I was like, okay, they're going to need to know what this is because it involves separate language, you know, key terminology that doesn't exist outside of, you know, this this event. So, um, so yeah, so we're going we're gonna to break it down now. So I think we have to talk about Fed Cup. Well, okay, Fed Cup, to start, is a team, national team competition uh, where each country who has a federation, so pretty much every country. It used to be called Federation Cup, Fed Cup, if you're wondering what, it, what the name came from. Um, each country competes to win, in theory, and they have a team of four players, like Davis Cup. It's To answer the Davis Cup part, it's the women's equivalent of Davis Cup, more or less. There are differences, though. Davis Cup has a 16-team world group, and it's much bigger. Fed Cup um, has a eight-team world group, and then something confusingly called World Group 2, which is sort of the second-tier of a global group, it's not like uh, zonal ties, right? It's not like Davis Cup, where the where the tier below world group is geographically divided. Um, so the Fed Cup is played three times a year, uh, finals in November, and I guess and so the promotion relegation works as so. So basically, there were all the tiers I think pretty much were playing this past weekend. So the we just the four ties we just mentioned were all the world group one ties ones that those teams had a, have a chance to win the title to win the Fed Cup this year and so the four teams that can still win the whole thing in 2016 are the Swiss the French the Netherlands and the Czechs so they're all in it but there's also eight team there were also four ties in the world group two format last week which includes the US the US and played, I should I just want to interrupt to point out a tie. Uh-huh. Is the yeah. weekend it's, so it's it's, it's basically five matches, yeah. the set of five matches, two singles, well, four singles matches, both, and we'll work through that in a second, and then a doubles match. So that's one tie is a weekend, and each so one of those matches is called a rubber. <laughs> it's so just... it's like it's very specific stuff to Fed Cup and Davis Cup. 
and it's needlessly confusing about all that stuff, which is I agree. Part, of, part of it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so uh, in the World Group 2 this weekend, there were wins by the U.S., by Australia. U.S. beat Poland. Australia beat Slovakia. Belarus beat Canada. And the last one was Spain beating uh, Serbia. So all those things happen. And so the winners there, like sort of a soccery thing, the winners there go to uh, play for the four losers from first round of World Group. They'll play in April for spot. They got scrambled a bit, so it's, it's not entirely just winners versus losers. Uh, they're reseeded, and which I'm not really sure why. And the teams will play in April for spots in World Group. So the U.S. will go to Australia uh, next uh, in April. Right. So just to break it down, yeah. the U. Yeah, I, I I don't really understand the scrambling either. The reseeding is I don't get the reseeding at all. Yeah, you would think the four teams that won in World Group Two should play the four teams that lost in World Group One. Right. Because like, like each one of those because, ties because Germany and Romania have to play each other in right. this next round, whereas USA and Australia get to play each other. It's geographically terrible because it's going to be in Australia most likely. Um, so that's un- inconvenient. But they get to play other teams who weren't, you know, quite with it, whereas these two teams who were in World Group now have to fight each other for a spot. It's just, it's odd. Yeah, I mean, it just makes more conceptual sense to, like, have to knock out the team that's in the World Group to earn your spot in the World Group. And usually seedings work that way. Usually they do, but not always. Yeah, this year, that's, this year it's a bit, yeah, it's a bit, because you have, like Ben said, you have Romania and, um, and uh, Germany, both who lost in World Group 1, they'll play each other to stay in World Group 1. That tie will happen in April. The loser of that tie will be demoted to World Group 2. So that's conceptually how that happens, which is obviously really kind of terrible for both Romania and Germany, who had terrible first-round draws anyway, with Germany having to play the Swiss, the very strong Swiss team, and the Romanians having to play the defending champion Czechs. So they kind of got, like double hosed by the draw yeah <laughs> they no, got and- hosed in the first round and the reseeding and then the redraw in the second like one of those teams is now going to be in world group two which kind of sucks and one of the things because they're great teams they're great teams and as we, we were talking about before now they both have to like field really good teams for the next round which isn't always the case in fed cup not everybody brings their a game and i'm pretty sure i don't think i don't think that right now fed cup is a huge priority for the top american women and I would not expect for the uh, team that the U.S. sends, to this, assuming it stays in Australia, especially in this very undesirable time of year between, you know, the North American swing and the European clay season. It's a terrible time of year to have to go to Australia uh, if you're a pro player focusing on your you know, pro tournaments. Uh, anyway, not everybody always plays Fed Cup. And part of the reasons they do are for all of the Olympic requirements which are built in. And Courtney, you had a great explainer post about all this on the WTA Insider uh, stuff on the WTA website. So if you can sort of talk through why, what boxes, I guess, players were trying to check uh, this week in particular, and just over the past four years by playing Fed Cup, why this was required, and why Maria Sharapova was there on the bench for Russia this weekend. <laughs> And not playing. Oh, yeah. It's so, I mean, honestly, like, just, like, putting together this post was incredibly informative, but it also reminded me of my lawyer days of, like, looking at different types, you know, which rules. So many go. clauses. There's so many clauses. There's lots of triggers. There's lots of sub-clauses. It's a whole thing. But basically, yes, the ITF is tied. Obviously, the ITF runs both Fed Cup, Davis Cup, and also the Olympic 
event effectively as an ITF event. So they have tied Olympic eligibility to Fed Cup and Davis Cup participation. Which is genius um, of them because it's honestly <laughs> the only thing keeping most players playing Fed Cup at all. So prior to this last Olympic cycle, like if you go back to like the qualification um, uh, uh, time for the London Olympics, mm-hmm. you only had to play twice, I think. Yeah, twice in the four years, yep. Twice in the four years, which is pretty manageable. I mean, like, that's not, you know, so hard to do, honestly. But they changed it after London and increased it to three times. And on top of that, there's timing issues as well, where one of those ties has to occur in the two years prior to the Olympics. In other words, you can't knock out your three ties early on in in the Olympic cycle and then not play again. So at least one of them has to be... In 2015 or 2016. Exactly. Exactly. So that's the basic rule for Fed Cup eligibility. What does it mean, though? Because you don't actually have to play. As we saw this weekend, Maria Sharapova flies to Moscow um, and basically told us already in Australia, I'm going to be there. I'm not playing, but I will be there. So if she already knew that she wasn't playing, why did she go all the way to Moscow? Because the definition of, uh, of being eligible is to be a part of the, the Fed Cup team at the time of the draw and be present at the tie a minimum of three times in the four-year Olympic cycle. Right. So and you don't, actually you have, don't to, have to play. You don't have to play. And you also can also be swapped out. Like you can, I know that like Azarenka, for example, I was at a Fed Cup tie. The only time I ever been to Fed Cup was once uh, when the Belarus played the U.S. in Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, right after Azarenka won the Australian Open for the first time. And Azarenka pulled out uh, of the tie before, right on on the morning of the Saturday, so before the first matches, and she still got credit for that. And yeah. even other players have been not put in the final four of the first four lineup and still get credit for playing. Uh, that can also it's, happen. that's why it's a bit confusing to me because you can make yourself available, quote unquote available, yeah, make yourself available, and then the captain doesn't choose you. Um, I could be wrong on this, but I don't think that you get penalized for a captain's choice. No, and and also right? you can also be, what you can also be available and willing, quote unquote, without ever you know being in the venue or even in the city where Fed Cup is happening. I mean, there was a case in 2012 Olympics where the ITF ruled that Tamira Pashik, who was doing pretty well in 2012, made a Wimbledon quarterfinal. Uh, after she made the Wimbledon quarterfinal, uh, I think it was after. I think I had the timeline on this right. They, they appealed to make sure she could get into the Olympics, saying yes, no, she she def- definitely did, you know, do everything she could. Um, and she was available and willing, even though she wasn't playing in 2010, which on the face of it is kind of ridiculous because she was by far the best Austrian player at that point. And so if she <laughs> like really you had been, picked her. Yeah, if she really like, had been available and willing, her. she would have played. Yeah. Um, and the same thing goes for Sharapova various times. You know, I don't know if Sharapova's ever claimed the, el- the availability. I think she has maybe at certain points. Um which is, oh, I'm available. She makes sure to say she's available at some point in some press conference Then doesn't get picked. Like, if she really was willing to play, she would have played. Anyhow, all that is to say that it's a bit murky. And other things can happen where players can move up the rankings really fast. Like, Varvara Lepchenko um, yeah. in 2012 came out of nowhere. Like, really nowhere. She made a semifinals of Madrid out of nowhere, broke into the top 100 and top 50, made fourth round of the French. And she had never played Fed Cup before. Because her ranking had never been in a spot on the relatively deep U.S. roster, even with U.S. attendance issues. She had been outside top 100 forever. She was never going to get picked. But she said, I was available. I would have played if, you know, if ever I had been picked. 
And so that was enough, and she got to play. So the whole thing is all there's there's wiggle room in it, and I think ITF is probably trying to crack down on that some with this recent rule increase. And you're seeing more players comply to it. I mean, like Venus and Serena both have their requirements squared away, yeah. Uh, which has not always been the case this far out of an Olympics. Um, other players do too. Sharapova, that's why she's there. Isn't um, that why why Serena went to Kharkiv? Yes, Serena went to Kharkiv, Ukraine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Serena had to go all the way to Kharkiv, Ukraine to get make, <clears throat> get her Olympic uh, eligibility squared away. So, yeah, it's a, it, that's a big aspect of it in terms of, of being a, a motivating factor uh, when players maybe would rather take that week off or, you know, um, uh, manage your schedules how they want to. But there are a lot of exemptions, that are not ex- a lot, but there are a few exemptions. So it's really always difficult to ever say if a player has qualified for the Olympics until the list actually comes out to yeah. say that a player has actually qualified because they have to be in good standing with their national, uh, national federation. Some which Bartoli, have, we mentioned Bartoli right. earlier, which Bartoli was not. And why Bartoli did not play the 2012 Olympics or any Olympics actually. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of things going on. So being just the top 56 and the way that you get direct entry into the singles main draw is that you're effectively, in the top 56, there's some wiggle room there because if people pull out or aren't eligible, they, you know, obviously extend that line. But if you're one of the top 56 eligible players as of, I think this year, it's June 8th. Which is the Monday after the French Open, yeah. Which is the Monday after the French. So French Open results will will be massive as well um, for these players in terms of, of making that final push. But um, it's interesting. Uh, and then the only other... Very important thing to keep in mind when it comes to Olympic eligibility is that each country can send no more than four singles players uh, for women, for men, and then field two doubles teams. Yeah. And I should Um, say, all of these these, uh, rules that we just said, I think all of them, exactly the same for men with Davis Cup. So it's not just a women's thing. All these rules exactly apply. And they're they're debated. And I think one thing, especially a lot of the players are very outspoken about wishing this was not the case. There there weren't all these requirements. And we got a question that's semi-related I'm going to try to pivot to uh, from Spin Day 2, who asked about uh, what you think about the constant country flag showing during Australian Open coverage. Channel 7 in Australia has uh, puts little icons of the flags of everybody's country, which is new, actually, because they only used to put Australian flags which was ridiculous, but now they have everybody's country uh, flag next to it. Um, and he says, why is nationality important? This is an individual game. And a lot of players do argue that they are representing the country every time they play. You know, I, Kevin Anderson doesn't play Davis Cup and is therefore not Olympic eligible, and he's accepted that. Um, but he thinks, you know, he says that he feels like he's representing South Africa every time he's, you know, playing in a Grand Slam. And if he makes a Grand Slam quarterfinal like he did the U.S. Open and beats Andy Murray, it's a good result for South Africa. And I totally think he's right. I mean, look at the attention Angelique Kerber got this week for Germany because of her Grand Slam result uh, and all that sort of stuff. So I think, and look at what Simona Halep has done and how big a deal she is in Romania and how she brings out flags and fans and all that stuff without ever really having any notable Fed Cup results. Yeah, so, and if you look at it from, from Halep's perspective, you can understand, or even like a Sharapova, you know, or Azarenka, or Wozniacki, who still needs to play one more zonal tie, uh, the ITF confirmed to me, in order to uh, trigger her eligibility, which is funny because she's already been named Denmark's flag bearer yeah. for the Olympics. So it's like, well, but you, you, you still got to qualify. Um, but there's a zonal tie coming up, so she'll play that. But, um, you know, or a Redvanska, some of these players who play from small countries and, you know, 
they represent their country incredibly well on the tour level at the slam level day in day out and then on top of all that they do though have to you know for especially if you look at like a Wozniacki because Denmark's never been in in world group yeah um, so so those times are actually at different times a year the yeah, zonal, it, the zonal stuff she's doing at different times of year, and she has to play. I think one year it was during. I think she skipped it, but one year it was during Madrid, which is a premier mandatory WTA insane. event, and that's yeah. when they had. And that the the ITF doesn't schedule uh, those ties, thinking that relevant players, which is their own fault, or you know, it's, it's a problem that they do that. That um, they're making it inconvenient for players like that. So. Um, I she has to play though, and, and I know that she's like she plays against players who are like who are like unranked because Denmark's really bottom tier, um, in part because she doesn't play that often, um, and so she's played against players who were I think I want to say I should look up her page, but uh, yeah, small yeah. African countries I feel like unranked players. Just I want to say were... one time like she I I, I want to say she had to play either Belarus Denmark played Belarus or Poland in like a zonal tie and it was just kind of funny because you're like well this is Wozniacki Redvanska or this is Wozniacki you know uh uh uh, Azarenka this is kind of like a massive singles match to be happening on the zonal level right but but it almost never bears out that way and that's the thing that happened I mean you could say this weekend with Belarus Canada like that should be like ooh, Azarenka Bouchard and neither of them show up um and and Azarenka (laughs) is at the Super Bowl and I saw someone tweet like she tweeted a photo like Super Bowl you know, emojis, whatever, and someone's like, "Wow, that's a great venue for Fed Cup." And it's like, "Yeah, it, yeah, not everybody that shows happens. up." So it that's happens. part of what the frustration we have with Fed Cup is that we just wish if it was best on best always. It'd be amazing, but it's not. So you have to take it for what it is. And and that happens with Davis Cup as well. Oh, of course. Like, of mem- course. remember when you and I got so excited for Switzerland in Serbia? In Davis Cup, what was it last year? First round, and then neither Novak or Roger played. Yeah, and I was like, it was the one time that you would actually see a crowd anti Federer and pro Djokovic. I think Federer might have played, but Djokovic really didn't. Wanted... But yeah, and it, yeah, it, something like that. It, it just didn't happen, and you're just like, ah, that would have been dope. Yeah, it's so actually really rare in Davis Cup, especially for top ten players to ever play each other, which is just sad. So. Uh, we've said all this before on the show, but it being a Fed Cup weekend and Olympic year uh, seemed like a good time to revisit all this stuffs. Um, and yeah, so we'll see. I don't think the ITF is going to change the requirements. I think they're going to keep. They know how the stock of Olympic tennis has gone up so much as Fed Cup and Davis Cup have become less compulsory for players in their own minds and in their agents' minds and whatever else. Um, that tide probably isn't shifting, but. I will say this, though. I don't know if this is the sense that you got um, in Australia, and maybe because it's too early. I don't know. Um, But I felt like there was far more chatter surrounding the Olympic tennis when it was in London than there is this year. I agree. Right? Because of, like, it was at Wimbledon, and there was all these, you know, there was a lot going on there, and people were, like, really excited about it right out of the gate to start the season. Whereas here, like, I've asked a lot of players about the Olympics, and not really ever, anybody's, like, wanting to talk about it yet. Like, it, yeah. it, it's like, it's almost like a bit of, a, not an afterthought. I mean, they say all the right things when you ask them on the record, but um, just off record, a lot of people are just like, oh, honestly, I'm just trying to get through to get to clay, and then we'll figure out, like, what's happening, you know, no, from it's, there. It, it's so far away, you're right. And most players are, in theory, on the bubble and don't want to jinx anything yet, because as you said... Very few have actually, quote-unquote, qualified yet. Nobody technically has qualified yet. Um, even, like, a Djokovic could be declared ineligible for some odd reason by his federation. Could happen. 
yeah, so all of that is is still there. Um, one thing also on that, which I guess has been, I know some players are starting to realize, it's made wasn't made super clear by the ITF, but this year there will be no ranking points at the Olympics, which is a first. I th- or no, at least was it, it's at least a change, if not a first, uh, because last time in London there were some token ranking points, very few, it's fewer than a Masters, um, and I know that like Washington was a 500 tournament for the ATP held simultaneously, um, and you got more points for winning Washington with, with his decimated field. Dolgopolov won Washington and got more points for winning Washington than Federer got for winning a silver medal at the Olympics, which is like, what? what why? What? Nah. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. No, it didn't make any sense at all. So now there's no ranking points for other ATP or WTA. Um, you think that's good, bad? Anything, Courtney? I mean, I can go either way on it because I think that, like, mentioning Kevin Anderson, uh, he doesn't play Davis Cup. And so I guess it's and so and so he's Olympic ineligible, and so it's fair to not let everyone pass him in the rankings because he doesn't play Davis Cup. Um, I don't know. I can go either way on it. You? Um. Yeah. I mean, I can go either way on it. I think that. Um, I think that there is something that just doesn't feel right. You, you're citing the Kevin Anderson issue. It would be the same, you know, mm-hmm. back when Bartoli was playing because of her issues with the French Federation. I think that. There's and then also instances where you're too hot, you're you come from a country that has so much depth, exactly. So, technically, so technically, let's say you're top 50, but you're like the sixth player from your country to be in the top top 50, right? You're not going to get to play the Olympics, exactly. To like me, Coco, like Coco should, Vandaway or something like that, right? Play exactly. Yeah. Um, so to me, the, does something doesn't feel right about awarding ranking points to players when the tournament is not an open tournament. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. everywhere else, obviously you can't, I mean, we know this on tour, like you don't get to play every tournament that you want to play into, but if you qualify for by ranking, you are main draw eligible, right? Like you get into qualies and you work your way through, but no one is in a position to stop a player on the ATP or WTA from playing their tournament on tour. Um, same at the majors. So whereas in this situation, because of all the qualification requirements, it feels like a separate special thing. Um, so it doesn't feel right offering ranking points. And I think the WT, cause ATP doesn't offer ranking points for Davis cup. Do they? Or they, they do. do. They do, yeah. which I don't like. And I don't think WTA does. I think the ATP, I think it's actually almost arguably garbagier, the Davis cup ranking points thing, especially cause it's based on what rounds you do, not who you beat. And so if you play like the mm. final, I know, I want to say, I'm going to be getting this wrong cause I don't know this minutiae of the rules perfectly, but like, I think Kyle Edmund got a pretty good chunk of ranking points for playing in Davis cup final. Oh. Which is just pure luck. Yeah. Um, or even if he even if he didn't, something... he would have had access if he had one match. I don't know exactly, but like basically, you can ride coattails to ranking points in Davis Cup in a way that I think is uh, kind of dopey. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that 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 just doesn't doesn't feel it doesn't feel kosher to me. I the other thing too is that um, you can't defend these points. Like, yeah, I've heard you make that argument. That one doesn't bother me as much. I don't have a problem with there being a ranking point that just lasts for 12 months. I don't think all points have to be defendable. But I see where you're coming from. But level. you know what I mean? I just it, it just it complicates things. I don't know. I like simplicity and I hate math. So like <laughs> if, if something involves an extra set of numbers that I'm unfamiliar with that and just mucks up the system for a couple of years, I get really I get a little frazzled. So while there are no ranking points in Fed Cup and no ranking points in the Olympic. There are ranking points in Davis Cup for some reason, which I don't get, and they are baffling. So here they are. 
I just wanted to say that like Ben Ben was reading these off and I lost it after like the second one. I was like, we had to do a lot of editing here because this is this was vastly confusing. So uh, in the playoffs, let's start at the beginning. In the playoffs, you get five points for a win. However, if the win is on day two of the uh, or the second singles day, you get ten points for a total of fifteen available points. Okay. Uh, in the first round of World Group, you get 40 points for a match win. Um, and for the first round only, a player who competes in a live rubber without a win receives 10 ranking points for participation. That's only in the first round. Okay. In the quarterfinals, you get 65 points per win. Semifinals, 70 points per win. And in the final, 75 points per win. But there are team bonuses. <laughs> You're in the final. Is this like the Coca-Cola PowerPoint? <laughs> it's it's so much like that, actually. There's a team bonus awarded to a player, who a singles player, who wins seven live matches in a calendar year. And his team wins the competition. That's 75 points. Uh, there's also a performance bonus, great term, awarded to a singles player who wins eight live matches in a calendar year. It's a totally different term for, like, seven wins versus eight wins. It's bizarre. Um, uh, in, that point, in that case, you get 125 points. So why does all this matter? All this matters because Davis Cup champion Andy Murray is using these Davis Cup points to be ahead of Roger Federer in the rankings. How many points did you say he got, Courtney, for Davis Cup? Like 625? 625 points that Andy Murray got last year for winning Davis Cup. That's That's a ton. That's a lot. That's more than you would obviously earn uh, winning a 500, which was Queens. So he earned more points playing Ray Davis Cup. He also, uh, that's more points than you get making a final at an ATP Masters, which is and 600. Like, and like, not only that, like, there's also some, I mean, obviously Federer didn't play, but it, so didn't, you know, forfeited that, whatever, um, and would have gotten some ranking points from Davis Cup the year before. But also, like, it just gives, talking about unequal opportunity with uh, Kevin Anderson and things, like, Kyle Edmund had a shot to win 75 points in a match last year for an opportunity that he... It was Edmund who played, right, in the final? Yeah. Who, for an opportunity, he didn't do a whole lot to get there for. So just, like, there's unequal opportunities for ranking points that are against the spirit of, quote-unquote, open tennis that... Davis Cup, I'm pretty sure there should be no ranking points involved in this at all. And just to back up uh, on Ben's point about Murray ahead of Federer, Murray currently has 8,945 points. Roger Federer has 8,795 points. So that's about, what is that, like 150? 150 Mm -hmm. point difference. That's barely more than the performance bonus. Yeah. 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 So not that, like, you know, obviously, Andy Murray, you earned it. It's all right. You know, these are the rules. These are the rules in place. Like, and as you said, Roger got the bonus and Stan would have gotten a similar bonus the year before. But uh, it does explain, because I was telling Ben offline, I was like, I kind of haven't really understood why Andy Murray is still number two for kind of like a while. It really just seems to me that Roger's had the better the better last 12 months. And then I yeah. looked at that and I was like, ah, there it is. There's 625 points that I just wasn't accounting for at all. Yeah. No, so. for sure. And it's 625 points that Murray got with, yeah win Davis Cup against not great competition all the time. So anyway, good for Andy. That's our sidebar. That's the whole I think we wanted to include this part to just show how convoluted and bizarre it's it just, gets once you get yeah. to, once you get to the ITF uh, ATP WTA all the, how all these things work together, it can be messy. It there's a lot of different interests involved, but um but hey, I mean, once the thing about it is that the conversation but in the months between the actual like matches the actual ties is always like loaded with 
whatever, you know, you get think pieces from every tennis writer. I've written them when I was with Sports Illustrated um, about, you know, what, how Davis Cup or Fed Cup can be reformed uh, as national competitions. Do they need to be reformed? Do they not? Are they fine as is? Everybody's got an opinion. Um, But once play gets started on any given weekend, it's fun. I enjoy enjoy Fed Cup. I love Davis Cup once it gets started. Then, like, when it's actual happening and you get the great atmosphere and, um, you know... In arena, it's great. Yeah. It's... Yeah, I've never been to one, so... um, Including just watching on TV. Like, that's what I mean. You know, know, when you're in the match, when you're in the atmosphere, all that's great. Just some of the... It's tennis. I mean, what's not to like about tennis? I mean, it's tennis, like, high-stakes tennis. You know, and you get uh, opportunities for, like, you know, uh, lesser known players to have hero moments. It's great. It's very emotional and it's fun. The discussion in between it all, um, that's where things get a, a little muddled. And now, did we ever talk about the the Laver Cup? Oh, I don't think we did. Like, oh, there, now there's, there, now there's <laughs> that, like, uh, curveball apparently happening with the Labor Cup um, spearheaded by, by uh, Roger Federer and his agency, Team 8, um, uh, as a national men, men only national, yep. uh, competition. Uh, it's not national ask. actually. It's the, it's Europe versus the rest of the world, which as an American, when have we ever been considered the rest of the world? Sorry. Like <laughs> we're America, like you come up against us, but anyways, um, some of the discussion regarding that has been pretty, uh, at least the day when they were announcing it, when we were in Australia was funny just because all of the journalists around me, everybody was cracking this, the greatest jokes. Um, just because like, if you look at it on paper, it's such a skewed field. Like the oh, rest of the world is terrible. It's not great. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about like the four top guys, which doesn't include Rafa at the moment. Um, but the four top guys are all European. And then you're talking about like Nisha, Corey, Raunich, Isner, Anderson. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, Anderson. That's and that right. doesn't even count the potential wild cards of pulling a Kyrgios in there or Atomic in there because Australia and it's labor. And you're just not going to get good attendance for the thing. It's, it's more the point. Yeah, they you're not going to get. September. You're not going to get all four top guys showing up. Well, the, the, the current money date is obscene. Yeah. The the current date is like right after Fed Cup or uh, Davis Cup semifinals, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't it uh, September after the U.S. Open that they're pitching it? It's in late September, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. It's... Anyway, the whole thing's <laughs> it's just adding another mess to this already messy mess. And so I guess that's part of what we like about tennis. But speaking spe- speaking of messes and speaking of think pieces, Courtney, can we pivot to Cam Newton? Oh, Cam. Because I feel like when we – I feel like as sports writers, it's we are actually legally obligated to talk about Cam Newton this week. It's sure. it's, in our, it's in our contract somewhere. We have to do it. <laughs> um, and being veterans of press conferences and loser press conferences in particular ourselves, I guess what were your thoughts on – Cam Newton, uh, first of all, losing the Super Bowl, playing not a great game, getting destroyed by the Denver defense, much to the heartbreak of John Isner, Laura Robson, Juan Monaco, and whoever <laughs> else bandwagons the Panthers uh, in tennis. What are your thoughts on that happening? And I guess how it's all been received. I guess if you can tee it up for people who might have no idea what we're talking about also. Sure. sure. Uh, yeah, so Cam Newton for uh, all of the times, if I had a nickel for every time in January – that a, for, that a non-American reporter had to ask me, what is this dance? 
that Azarenka is doing uh, and explain it's the DAV. It comes from NFL football, Cam Newton. So it all stems from Cam Newton, who is the uh, NFL MVP. That is our football league. Um, Can I just like, say, though, the Az- on the Azarenka front, uh, she's apparently like suddenly like a diehard Broncos fan. Her, yeah. her, Super, her Super Bowl, uh, uh, you know, her involvement with every Super Bowl, it was I find it baffling. It was something about Peyton, and it was like a connection through, because she's really good friends with Laird Hamilton and his wife, Gabrielle Reese, surfer, volleyball player, and like, they know Peyton. She shares an agent with Cam, and she was doing the dab, like, all of it. Exactly. It was a lot of, it was a lot of double dipping, it felt like. It probably was. Double dabbing, you know, double, oh, look what you did there. Um, I'm not a proud of that, but yeah. No, yeah, it shouldn't be. Um, But yeah, no, so so Cam Newton had a near-perfect season, goes into the Super Bowl against the Denver Broncos as the Panthers are heavily favored to win the Super Bowl, uh, most explosive offense all year, only lost one game, um, gets absolutely rattled and uh mauled um and there are other adjectives just Just straight up beat by a spectacular denver defense and defensive scheme as instituted by defensive coordinator wade phillips um who looked like a ghost by the way with his white sweatshirt and his white hair he looked ghostly he was wade he was he was it was creepy his headset was like so close to his mouth i thought he was gonna choke on it i was like are you wearing a retainer no that's your motorola headset um yeah, so then Cam Newton, after the game, um, there were a lot of question marks about some of the things that he did during the game. One thing was a fumble that he didn't attempt to recover, which was just weird. The more you watch that replay, you're like, why didn't he try to recover that? It's odd. Uh, but yeah, gives a very terse press conference, um, kind of one of those, I'm just here not to get fined. He gave uh, one good answer. I will say he gave one like long answer, which was like totally a quote that anybody could plug in. Mm-hmm. But the rest of it was just like one word, two word, like, what did they surprise you on? On you know they do anything different? Yeah, we lost the game. Nothing different. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was a lot of Cam Newton for all sorts of reasons has attracted incredible amounts of hot takery this year. Um, and I think just seeing the Super Bowl, I was I was bracing myself for a lot of hot takery this moment, and there mostly was a lot. (laughs) I think in the end, a lot of the people seemed to be coming to I think an okay conclusion. Which was uh, him, you know, saying Cam Newton. I, first of all, I'm totally pro Cam. I have no problem with anything else that previously was provoking hot takes about him being like too. He's being called arrogant, being called. You I know, love him. Graceful. He's tremendous. He makes, he makes sports look fun. He plays. He's so, it should be fun. Yeah, he plays with a joy, and it's it's great. And the Panthers were really fun to watch this year. They overachieved, which we absolutely saw in the final. Um, I keep calling it the final. The Super Bowl. <laughs> the final. Um. But, uh, yeah, I mean, they were they were a fun ride, you know, and Cam Newton has everything to be proud of. But, yeah, I mean, he was the subject of just a lot of what felt like at times incredibly racially charged oh, yeah. uh, uh, takes on just what is a proper way to be a quarterback. What's the, just what, obvious code How you should be a role model for kids and he's dancing and how dare he. It's so weird. Like, and it's just the like, weirdest. The idea of being anti-fun in football, of all sports, football is miserable. Football is nothing but head injuries and like lifelong pain. Well, and we let someone enjoy it, as we saw in the Super Bowl when Cam Newton wasn't enjoying it. It was a really crappy game. Not crappy. Yeah. I mean, the defense was amazing, but it wasn't fun to watch for it wasn't four a great hours. Game. It was no. like, Ugh. I yeah. drank one beer during the entire Super Bowl, which but shows all- you how, like, 
I'm normally like a stress eater <laughs> and like an awkward, I drink to, avo- to like alleviate my awkwardness. And I felt no awkwardness and I wasn't stressed out because the game was so boring. <laughs> pretty much. That's pretty much right knowing you and knowing that game. Um, <laughs> I will say though, wasn't it, so, but just to, on the press conference point, as somebody, as people, Courtney, we've been to lots of press conferences, good ones, bad ones, awful ones. Should Cam get, be getting crap for this? And what should we take away from his press conference? I mean, he can get crap for it and you can still say it's not that big of a deal. Like, these are not mutually exclusive takes, I don't think. Like, you know, would you, would I personally, as me, Courtney Nguyen, football fan, um, have preferred to see a guy who played with so much joy and exuberance all year long and who was great with kid, you know, great with kids and I thought was a great role model throughout the entire year. Would I have preferred for him to come into that press conference and own that loss and stand up there and say, look, we got beat and, you know, we could have played better. Their defensive scheme was solid, whatever. And just, you know, take it. I absolutely would have preferred that. And I think that that would have done wonders for his image um, as comp, which doesn't need help. But to the extent that like, you don't want to give haters ammo, that right, would have been an amazing yeah. opportunity and a missed opportunity. That's, that's my sort of regret with it. Is it just, just, just by doing that, he gave, he does have a ton of haters and he gave them ammo that he didn't need to give them. Right. Exactly. And we've seen, as people pointed out, we've seen shitty press conferences from coaches. Bill Belichick is notorious for this. Uh, Greg Popovich on the NBA side, who are just jerks in press John conferences. Tortorella, yeah. John Tortorella. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, who are just jerks. So it's not, but like the fact that Cam is a black quarterback and he's like defying all of these like stereotypes and whatever, but de- still dealing with all of the residual, very pregnant, uh, you know, um, accusations and, and reads and takes on his personality and who he is and what he means to football, it gets complicated. Um, but I think for me, but at the, at the end of the day, he's like, what, 26? He'll be fine. Who cares? You know, it's a freaking press conference. And the story is the Denver defense. That's fine. And Peyton Manning or whatever. But it did make me think a lot about tennis and the fact that, you know, one of the things that was interesting that night was seeing my timeline light up with... Uh, sports writers and also fans, sports fans, maybe not tennis fans, but sports fans who were like, you know, he just lost the biggest game of his career. Like you guys are being way harsh on him. Like, what do you expect? He has every right to be disappointed. And, you know, and I'm like, yeah, all of that's true. But I also am in a business and in a sport and granted my sport is a niche sport, but where these players have to do that every week. Everyone except for one player gets to give a press conference that's, you know, not a losing press conference. Um, yeah. And, them... and concession speeches on court, even closer to that. Exactly. You have to go up there and say, congratulations, you get the trophy, you beat me. And, like, without fault. Like, when is the last time there was any sort of graceless concession speech? Where no one, no one, I can't remember any. I kind of wish there was one now that I'm saying this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just like, you got lucky. Just, like, drops the mic. <laughs> Like, no, because happen. because even the even the ones where, you know, the memorable concession speeches are like all incredibly emotionally raw, which is very unfair to tennis players. Like I always think, like it's just the cruelest thing to have to like stand there after you've lost a Grand Slam final and address the crowd. Like I think that that's just sadistic. Um yeah. But they do. Look at it you, and Andy handle... Murray, twenty twelve. Yeah. Yeah, and Roger at the Aussie. Um, it you know it happens, and it, it Roddick. Um, at least could use his humor 
at Wimbledon. Roddick handled it pretty well. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but yeah, you're right. I, I don't remember, you know, anybody being shitty in a concession speech. Um, and if you're, if we're wrong though, guys, please feel free please. to sh- send us any shitty concession. I kind of want to see them now. I would if there love are shitty, con- if there are shitty tennis concession speeches, let us know. Right. But in terms of press conferences, you know, obviously we had Venus skipping two press conferences in the last, uh, last three slams after opening around losses. Uh, you know, I think that we had discussed how the opportunity lost by Serena Williams at the U S open last year when she gave a very brief, not cam like, because she was far more for- forthcoming than what cam was. Uh, but in the, in New York after losing to Vinci, just not using that moment to kind of take control of the narrative to to yeah. insert yourself and give people something to where which, which she totally did which she totally did this year in australia yes yes yeah exactly this like what serena did in australia and people can take you know i've heard some people say that it's complete and utter bs that she was like just put you know putting on you know that she was tore up about it of course she's tore up about it serena hates losing but that doesn't mean that you can't, like, in that moment, recognize that it's a big opportunity moment for somebody else and that it's not about you, that you can go cry about it later. And she was but, performing, you know, on on court, especially with how incredibly gracious she was, you know, coming over to hug Kerber, how great she was during the whole trophy ceremony. Even if it was all completely insincere, she was doing it and it, it made the experience great for Kerber. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that meant a lot to Kerber, and so it good did. for her. Even if it wasn't, you know, the truest representation of how what her raw emotions were, there are, you know, things to be said for that. And, and obviously, we... press conference is a little different. I mean, Cam was never – and Cam did go yes. shake, you know, hands with Peyton afterwards. And Peyton, by the way, like, worst Super Bowl winning quarterback Ugh. in forever. Ugh. I, I kind of cannot with Peyton. I recommend Drew McGarry's article about Peyton. <laughs> um, I don't know if you saw that, but it's pretty good. I did. Yeah, it was great. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. Peyton's yeah. big, big old head rides off to the sunset, and all is fine. <laughs> yeah, all is fine with with the doping allegations swirling and all that sort of stuff. It's just weird. The whole Peyton story narrative is just weird. That but weird. um, but yeah, no, I again, uh, as much as it is totally human to be just completely shattered after bad losses. Um, which is, I think, why it's human for Serena, Venus to want to skip out, human for Serena, human for, for Cam, human for, I mean, Rogers given snippy post-loss press conferences. Rafa has. Everybody uh, has. Novak I mean, most, has. Everybody has. Have. Yeah, exactly. It's not, like, unique to, to certain players, you know? But that being said, uh, it's also very human, I think, on the flip side of kind of humanity to what you said, like, Yes, okay, it's an act of insincerity, but it, it if you comport yourself, you know, in a kind way to your opponent, to the crowd, to the people who've paid money for, you know, whatever, it pays off in the end as well. And that's something very human that we do all the time, too. I don't necessarily, I'm not genuinely curious about, you know, my Starbucks barista's day. Um, when I ask her about it, but I ask her. And they her, don't care about yours. Yeah. And they don't care about mine, but it makes the whole transaction far more pleasurable and social and friendly than it otherwise would be, which is also a very human way of, of going about life. So I don't know. I don't think it's that big of a deal, but I, it would, I think he'll learn from it. You know what has made this whole like interaction with the podcast wonderful is getting to do it with you guys 
and thank you very much for listening. And if you want to follow along with us when you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. Did you just say licking us? I hope I said liking. No, you said said licking. You said licking us on Facebook. Do do whatever you want with your tongue while clicking the like button on Facebook. (laughs) I don't care. Uh, Facebook.com. I feel like the the postcard stamps are still like on your mind. Oh, yeah. Those were rough. They didn't have any self-adhesive international stamps in Australia. What is that, Australia? It is still the 90s there in so many ways. I'm so confused. Um, If you want to follow along with us when you're not listening, you can do the Facebook thing with your tongue or not. You can also follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. Send us questions. We're going to take more questions uh, throughout February. Send us questions, no challenge remaining at gmail.com. Best way to do that. You can also um, subscribe to us on iTunes and whatever podcast app of choice you want. And on those, send us reviews uh leave us reviews and ratings and comments and stuff and that helps us out we appreciate that uh we have some kickstarter this will be a regular theme now but we have on kickstarter our two top backers uh who you know at our top level to be executive producers he mentioned in these credit roles from now on thank you so much you guys thank you so much the executive producers of no challenges remaining are francisco resendez of tennisballs.com and tal woolley and also on the Kickstarter front, we're going to do next week uh, the entire list of $25 backers who get the shout-out on the show. Um, we have most of you guys have filled out your survey, but not all. So we just want to give everybody a chance to clarify how they want to be named on there. <laughs> it's also been a long episode already, and it was like it's like 99 names. So we're going to give you guys – we're going to give ourselves a bit of a break before doing that and get all of our – cards in order so if you are somebody on any level who hasn't uh, filled out your survey yet please do so uh this week you go first courtney what's your rant rave to take us home here oh rant rave well i am in i'm happy to be home back in the states the weather here in california has been amazing you probably saw it if you watched the super bowl it's just been awesome it's like warm and sunny and lovely um it was so weird I- by the way because i think this is the first to take you on a total sidebar just to derail you for no reason um, it was weird having the Super Bowl be West Coast, like outdoors, because like the halftime show was not in the dark. I know, which hadn't happened in a while. That yeah. was confusing. Beyonce it, would have liked dark, I imagine. Yeah, I think Beyonce. I think that would have been better in the dark. Even Coldplay, you know, like I've been to yeah. as much as I rip on Coldplay, and I rip on Coldplay for very specific reasons. And it's not because I think they're shitty. I just think that they're they're better than what they are, and that bothers me that they shoot they aim so low. Um, and their first like two or three albums were amazing. Everything pre fix you and viva la vida is not a bad album anyways but um i've been to tons of coldplay concerts and their their light shows are always phenomenal so actually if it was like coldplay in a dome i think it would have been like far more effective than the weird rainbowy peace love and happiness thing that they did which was weird because like that's like that would make more sense if like the super bowl was at candlestick park in san francisco this is santa clara which is like 45 miles south in the Silicon Valley, there were no hippies in Silicon Valley. <laughs> and I gotta say, like, I think as much as we riffed on Coldplay on this show previously, and Andre Pekovich obviously joined in on that with us, <laughs> I think that I felt bad for them with this whole narrative as a creative, like, Coldplay needed rescuing from Beyonce. Like, no, if Beyonce and Bruno Mars had not been on the stage and Coldplay was just out there for 10 minutes, it would not have felt awful. Coldplay is like an experienced 
veteranly band who can like who have enough songs people know to be able to fill eight minutes of Super Bowl halftime show or whatever. They would have been fine. And Beyonce obviously does her thing, comes in upstages, good for her. You know, yes, Queen, whatever. Uh, but it's not like Coldplay. I feel like got the short end of the stick on this more than they deserve to. Just it, in terms of in how of the optics of them getting upstaged and rescued, well, yeah, whatever they, else you want to say. They were set up to fail because they were the headliner. Yeah. And why would you list Coldplay as a headliner ahead of Beyonce? Like, and, and secondly, what the hell was Bruno Mars doing there? Get him off there. Well, the like, whole thing was it, was, it was this really half-assed attempt to be like, 50 Super Bowl, look back. But it's like, we're only looking back two years. Like, if you want to do like a, you know, total retrospective, I mean, like I, Eurovision had their 60th anniversary last year. God damn it. This, it's and, always about Eurovision. <laughs> and but did this great concert where they brought back people from like all the different decades and stuff and had this thing. They could have done that. Super Bowl could have done that. They could have brought back, you know, like up with people or whoever else the, the weird halftime acts were the past 50 years. A lot of them are still living. You can't get Michael Jackson or Whitney Houston, but you can do pretty well. Uh, and they just went, yeah, it was, all of it was, was odd, but I like that Beyonce has a song that just says slay over and over again. I know that's perfect, but it's also funny because like Chris Martin's up there singing with his piano, um, and like it's Coldplay and they're playing this montage of all of these classic, like halftime music moments. And the whole time, like, I'm just like, and now we're listening to Coldplay. (laughs) Like, like, (laughs) it was like Prince, the Stones, like, you know, there is some amazing ex James Brown, like amazing. And then the whole time, just like, and I'm just listening to Chris Martin. Cool. Who's fine. But Who's yeah, fine. But that's my issue with Coldplay. But that's my issue with Coldplay. They're fine. And there's just nothing worse than being fine. Like, either suck, at least then you're, like, causing some sort of emotional reaction, or, like, be good. And they're so talented as musicians and songwriters. They really, really are. I just wish that they would be good and not be you too. Ooh. I like that was the double burn. That was like a last name Yankovic burn right there. <laughs> I like that. Um, okay, sorry to derail your rant. Yeah, go well, ahead. Well, no, that, there was a rant right there. But <laughs> I just wanted. So I'm I'm full of love. So I'm gonna th- sh- shout out um, three things that have made me super super happy this week. First of all, or four things, I guess. Agent Carter, second season, fantastic so far. Four four episodes done. Haley Atwell, absolutely killing it. The season is like even funnier so much funnier uh than last season it's um they just have their comedic timing down as some of you saw me tweet Haley atwell's cleavage phenomenal this season um <laughs> clearly got upgraded to like full t- for full-time cast member because it's everywhere um but yeah agent carter great show totally underrated watch that x-files finally got caught up love the reboot i don't know what people are talking about it's so good and is it last- not getting received well yeah, I I think that generally I I tried to like avoid spoilers, so I wasn't really reading anything. But the sense that I was getting was like the first two episodes were really disappointing. The third episode is amazing, and then the fourth episode that was just last night was awesome. Although some people liked it, some people it was kind of hit and miss with people. Um, I've loved it. Every single episode has been fantastic, phenomenal. It's just fun watching those two be Mulder and Scully. The third episode in particular. All hail Darren Morgan, the best screenwriter for X-Files ever. Um, He's so, I mean, when X-Files does comedy as a way to discuss, like, the existential nature of humanity, it's at its best. Don't need anything else. And so the third episode is just, ugh, it goes down as one of the best episodes of X-Files of all time, uh, which is, therefore, makes this season 10 reboot awesome. Uh, The other two things that I'm just going to quickly rave about, 
One, I think I've talked about this before. Uh, I'm really into subscription services uh, because I travel so much. And so it's just nice. You come home, you have all these packages of pre-curated goods that um, you sign up for. Um, and one of them that I signed up for in December was a like pen slash stationary subscription package. And um, where for 30 bucks every month, you get a box full of like dope ass pens and notebooks and things like that. I have gotten two packages already. They have been awesome. I'm holding and fiddling with um, one of the fountain pens that they sent, um, which I love. They send you inks. It's just really cool. Um, and they're all really well-made stuff. It's stuff from Germany and, and Japan mostly. So it's pretty cool. But it's at um, www.ipenstore.com. Uh, for that monthly subscription box. And one of the things that they sent me in the most recent one was a fountain pen that only cost $3. And it's one of the best fountain pens I've ever used, like of any cost market thing. Uh, it's called the Platinum Preppy. So it's a $3 uh, reusable slash disposable. You can reuse them. You just refill the ink uh, pen. It's phenomenal just a phenomenal writing experience. So the platinum preppy, get one. It's awesome. Tremendous. Yeah. Um, my, I feel like, yeah, we haven't ran, we didn't really rent rave that much during Australia. So I feel like I have a lot to say. Not online. Oh. No, <laughs> offline <laughs> constantly. Yes. Um, I'm going to give, this is sort of, a, we did this last year. We, last year we did, did a whole episode post outro segment on cereal. Um, and I just sort of wondered, I think I want to rave about cereal. I think the cereal has been, I think the second, I don't know how many people listen to this, listen to Serial, but I think this season has really done well, like midway through. I think the last like two episodes helped a lot. I don't know. I don't want to get too spoilery. Yeah, I'm, I'm not caught up, but um, okay. But, but I think I I'm two say, episodes back. But the show sort of promised at the beginning, or the way it was framed was about um, zooming out eventually from this one case. This, the show is about Bo Bergdahl, who's a captured U.S. soldier. Um, and now that they are starting to zoom out more, um, I think it's gotten a lot better and just good and thoroughly enjoying all of that. Um, I also like the, the slate spoiler specials on cereal, which are good for sort of enriching that. And it's very meta having a podcast on a podcast. And also I will shout out to us because after we had our great success at the Australian open going daily, cereal started going daily from the Adnan trial last week. Um, so I see you, uh, Sarah. I, like, I, I know. Right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy to like have the podcast pioneers like, Totally copying us, and it's cool. It's fine. I love it. I'm chill about it. Yeah, no, yeah. it's all right. So, it's all right. All of that. Um, that will be my main... Yeah, I have other things, but I, I'll save them for some point. Courtney, can you explain why we're going to hear Amy Grant? In honor of Andy Murray and Kim Sears and this lovely baby girl that they brought into the world, we give you Amy Grant's greatest contribution to pop music. And the dude that's in this video, I remember when I used to watch this video, first of all, she made blazers look awesome. Like I kind of wanted the blazer with like the big old, uh, uh, you know, the jeans, white t-shirt blazer look. It was dope. Um, but the guy in the video is like super cute. He looks exactly like Nomar Garcia Parra, who I love. Nomar. <laughs> I love Nomar. <laughs> Sorry. Nomar. But um, he was super cute. And I remember the video very vividly because he was really cute. Um, and her blazer was on point. So yeah, baby, baby, what a jam. So good. Congratulations, Annie Murray. And I love the, I love the line in 30 Rock, the brand 30 Rock game where she says her favorite band is Andy Gray. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that line. I do but remember it that great. line. It's phenomenal. I mean, oh, Amy, you tried to go pop. That was actually not a bad album, by the way, that Amy Grant album that has uh, Baby Baby on it. 
I think it's called like Heart in Motion. Yes, right. Right. And that line is in this song. Yes. So here is Amy Grant to take us home. Finally. See you guys later. Bye. Bye.